That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnikin. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to another episode of This Show is All About You. So happy to have you with me for the next hour as we engage in conversations, thoughts, perspectives that uh, maybe come across our minds every once in a while, but maybe we don't dig into them the way that we could. And because of that, maybe we don't see some things that uh, might be helpful for us in our daily lives and show us that we have maybe a lot more in common with each other than we think. Whatever the case, thank you so much for joining me. If you'd like to know more about me, you can uh, check out my website, wordsbyjdk.com. You can get more background on me, some original content there, episodes of this show, updates on my my book publishing project that I'm trying to get my novel published. Uh, there's lots over there. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N. And you'll find me rather easily. Would love to chat with you, hear what you think about the show, and uh, just connect a little bit more. Uh, thank you at the very beginning uh, for this show. Um, let me try that again. Thank you <laughs> here at the outset <laughs> to this show's sponsor, Airway Science for Kids, a nonprofit based down in the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth through the exploration of aerospace careers. And there are literally hundreds uh, to choose from. And Airway Science for Kids introduces kids uh, to those in a number of different ways, but also really helps them develop what some people call 21st century skills. I guess I would call them the basic, really good life skills, uh, self-advocacy, self-concern, self-regard, connection to oneself and to family and community. And they do that through a wonderful series of programs that you can learn more about by checking out their website airsci.org. So thanks to them for their continued support. All right. Uh, we are coming up on several things. We're kind of, it's kind of a transition time in, uh, right now, at least year-wise. Uh, winter has been going on for a while. Spring is slowly coming. I'm kind of excited, my sports fan side. Uh, pitchers and catchers report to spring training here this week, which means baseball season is on its way, which of longtime listeners of this show know is my favorite sports season. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, the NFL football just ended with the Super Bowl yesterday. And, uh, and of course, there are holidays coming up that we tend to mark the year around. And one that is imminent is Valentine's Day. We are going to be talking about that sort of today. That is generally today's topic. Uh, but as we always do on this show, I start with the news, with uh, what in the world is going on. I talk about... Uh, what stories we're going to be hearing today, and then I'll give you all some updates at the end of the show on what is going on with me. But let's start with the news. What in the world is going on? There is an odd thing about the fight here. Russia doesn't gain much by taking this city. Bahmut isn't particularly strategic. It doesn't dominate any key roads or terrain. Instead, all this destruction is, to a large degree, an advertisement for the Russian mercenary group leading this fight. The Wagner Group 
is getting famous from all of this. So the biggest, bloodiest battle in this entire war is a marketing campaign for Russian mercenaries. I can't even imagine a more 21st century way to look at a war as a advertising campaign for a mercenary group. Uh, certainly, if you if you reflect back on the last month or so, we've been hearing a lot more about the Wagner Group uh, than ever before. A group of mercenaries fiercely loyal to uh, to Russia, but uh, really designed to be the spearhead of this ongoing invasion now that has almost reached the one year mark. That's coming up pretty closely. Uh, here on the calendar. What is uh, sad about this, of course, is the entire idea is to continue to drum up propaganda support for the continued invasion of Ukraine, which continues to grind on. Currently, Russia now has about 350,000 men ready to uh, push into eastern Ukraine, most of them coming from that big, uh, I guess you could call it forced draft earlier uh, a few months back. And so we're not talking exactly the most uh, skilled of soldiers, but the Wagner Group are skilled soldiers. And what's going on in Bakhmut, a city that is rapidly looking less and less like a functioning city every single day because of the destruction and death going on there, what is happening there is something that uh, Russia is building for its own propaganda to show the rest of the world that they will continue to send people into towns like this to destroy it literally brick by brick if necessary and that they will do so and give up lives by the hundreds, if not thousands. Just over the weekend, uh, a handful of Ukrainian drones destroyed upwards of 30 Russian tanks in a column. Each one of those tanks holds five people. Right? That's 150 men uh, gone in, a, in an awful hurry. And that is sort of the, the scary part about this, is Russia is pushing very hard in this new offensive uh, that normally they would wait for spring. But they're pushing now because, of course, those German and American and British tanks that were promised a few weeks ago will be arriving sometime in the spring, and conversations are already underway between Ukraine and, Na and their NATO neighbors to acquire modern uh, fighter jets uh, to help them. So Russia is trying to get as far as they can, push as far as they can, as deep as they can, inflict as much damage as they can before that happens, which means, as always, that this fight is going to continue to grind on. And, of course, I must also talk about uh, the story that everyone in the United States has been talking about a lot for the last week. There seem to be lots of weird things appearing in the sky. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau doubled down on his decision to take out an unidentified object over the Yukon on Saturday. It represented a reasonable threat to civilian aircraft, uh, so I gave the order to take it down. U.S. and Canadian forces are now in recovery mode piecing together several objects that American fighter jets shot down. The U.S. downed an aerial object the size of a small car on Friday over Alaska. It landed on sea ice, and crews are still working to get answers on who owned it and what it was. This has been a story that has taken on a life of its own, both in terms of actual news stories, uh, funny memes on social media, uh, you name it. Um, and there is something rather kind of weirdly comical about like the most state-of-the-art fighter jets in the world being sent up uh, to shoot down what effectively sound like they are balloons. Uh, that first one, the Chinese uh, communication spy balloon, it seems like what is what it was, that traveled across the continental United States and was shot down off the coast of South Carolina on February 4th, was just the beginning. Uh, three more objects, uh, smaller than that original uh, balloon, shot down uh, over the weekend, 
And of course, the with the lack of news about what these are, because they were shot down over very remote places, at least in two cases in the north on sea ice. One landed in Lake Huron, so that's an underwater recovery. And then, of course, the underwater recovery off South Carolina. All those things taken together means the lack of clear information about what these are, where they came from, has only fueled speculation, particularly on social media, about what this may or may not be. When chances are, it's probably exactly what most people think it is, uh, a balloon campaign by China to <laughs> send to float uh, communications equipment or um, some sort of spycraft gear uh, into American airspace to monitor uh, communications. That appears to be what that first balloon was. And what I find interesting about this story is, uh, I mean, certainly it's worth keeping tabs on, but there are, it's a tempest in a teacup in the big scheme of things. Both China and the United States and a number of other countries have satellites in low Earth orbit that can take far better pictures and listen in on communications far better than anything that a balloon can. What is interesting about this is, if it indeed is China behind this, is China is clearly, probably, engaged in a balloon spying campaign where they are targeting these balloons to float through certain altitude vectors where American radar, they may have information, just doesn't look for things either moving uh, at speeds that slow and at altitudes that high between where most commercial aircraft fly up to 40,000 feet and up to low Earth orbit at about 100,000 feet. That's a 40 to 60,000 feet difference. Floating something at very slow speeds through there could very well get through uh, radar signatures over countries, not just in the United States, but elsewhere. The very fact that more have been found has everything to do with the United States and Canada paying more attention to that altitude, uh, that altitude section. That's all it is. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what comes of this. Uh, but it's hard to see this as some major international incident, unless, of course, we whip it up into such a frenzy um, in social media and politically uh, in Washington and elsewhere that it becomes really bigger than it needs to be. Okay, and finally, to kick us off into our subject for today, let's talk a little bit about Valentine's Day, in particular, the difficulties that people can sometimes feel around it. I think one of the things that people can think about is adjusting their expectation. So we may have an expectation that's here and reality is here. And when there's that mismatch, what we end up having is distress. And so the biggest thing probably people can do is change their expectations and make plans for what that day is going to look like. Even if you don't have clinical depression, there are still lots of ways to improve your mood, not only on Valentine's Day, but any day. Of course, this is the time of year where uh, everywhere you go uh, in stores, there's Valentine's candy, Valentine's cards, sales on flowers, uh, restaurants uh, set up special hours and special menus for Valentine's Day. You get a blitz of ad campaigns for everything from uh, jewelry uh, to cars <laughs> to other gifts. It's kind of like a mini version of what happens around the holidays, <laughs> around Christmas uh, and New Year's, uh, but focused around, of course, romantic love. And every year at about this time, you see all of that happening. And then there are, of course, reports like the one you just heard a clip from that are talking about the difficulties that people can have uh, with the holiday, particularly if they have... Uh, bad associations with the holidays or with relationships and memories of them or don't have a significant other in their life and feel like they should or wish they did. And it can seemingly lead to a lot of different problems. And uh, the reason why I want to talk about that today is because I can, I can relate to that. Once upon a time, this holiday really 
really crippled me. Um, or more accurately, I can say now, I allowed it to do so. Uh, the stories that I told myself about it really caused me a great deal of harm. And I didn't understand it always uh, as such. Um, but for me, it seemed like an important thing uh, to talk about today because I find Valentine's Day more and more as this fascinating glimpse into so many of the things about our own sense of self and our own sense of connection with ourselves and with others. Uh, this, this microcosm of the difficulties that we inflict upon ourselves with this. And this isn't to say that people who enjoy the holiday and have the, that significant other or have that type of love in their life shouldn't celebrate this thing. Go, go ahead. You know, more power uh, to you. If you have love to celebrate in your life, then by all means, you should celebrate it, not just on Valentine's Day, but on, but on every day. But my larger point of what I'm going to talk about today is if we took a perhaps some different angles on looking at love in general, perhaps we would all find love to be celebrating and reflecting on and being grateful for uh, on a day like Valentine's Day and every single day. I guess that's what I'm, I'm interested in exploring today. Because one of the things that I have you know, learned and reflected on for a handful of years now is this idea that sometimes what comes across with Valentine's Day because of its strict focus on romantic love uh, and everything that goes with that, you know, people asking each other to marry them, give, you know, or renewing vows or all those things that, that romantic comedy movies are made of, you know, and, and stories are made of, fairy tales are made of. All those things taken together um, really limits down this idea of what love can be. And certainly... Uh, romantic love is one thing. However, I find it interesting, the implication in that is that love is somehow a finite resource that can only be defined one way, expressed one way, in one sort of context, or at least in a way that we will celebrate it, right, as such. Valentine's Day is really the only day that we talk about Love as love, the word, concept, and image, the heart image, the red color, and all of that. Certainly, other holidays are about love, too. When we have a birthday, right, people give well wishes to people on their birthday because they love them. But that isn't a, it's your birthday love day. It's, not, it's just a birthday. It's implied there, but it isn't necessarily explicit. And say that about a lot of other things. And I just, I spend a lot of time wondering about that these days. And so I have a three stories today that uh, I think can maybe broaden this out a little more, maybe illustrate what I'm talking about. Because I do think how we view Valentine's Day, as well as any other day, has everything to do with what we choose. How we choose to see that day, how we choose to see who we are, how we choose to look for and look at the types of love that we may have in our life. And not beat ourselves up for the feelings that we have about the types of love that we don't have in our life. It is something, it is a fuel for us. Love is, an, is the ultimate connector. And when we talk about it from a spiritual point of view, from a friendship point of view, from a, uh, a love of nature point of view, all these things we can start seeing can feed the soul just as much as romantic love can. The idea that romantic love is the champion 
of love is a relatively new concept. And by that, I mean the last 150 years or so. Uh, and not just in the Western world, globally. In fact, other types of love have long been championed further, farther, and deeper back in time and in societies than romantic love has. And that doesn't mean, again, that I'm going to be spending the next 45 minutes trashing romantic love. I am not. Because <laughs> that's a good thing, too. However, I guess I just want to get at I think there's something in this love thing for all of us, no matter who we are, where we are, and what we may or may not have in our lives. So I'm going to tell you three stories coming up here after the first break. One has to do with uh, a man uh, who was born in India and became one of the foremost uh, speakers on this subject that I've ever seen and that many others have ever seen. The other story is about a couple, uh, a long-stand couple together for 30 years, whose relationship really defied explanation at the time, and people have found fascinating to try to explain since. And then something from the recent news, which uh, I think will be quite useful uh, to talk about, and has to do with what might be the biggest rock band in the entire world. also happens to be my favorite band. So uh, we're going to talk about those three interrelated stories and see how well I interweave them together, starting when we come back from this break. So stick around uh, and come on right back. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I.org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids. Providing aerospace for all. Welcome back, everyone, to This Show is All About You with Valentine's Day coming up. I'm, I'm casting a broad net to talk about um, love beyond just simply the romantic understanding of it, which historically is a relatively new thing and uh, not something that is a part of the larger human story going back eons and eons. Uh, despite how good it feels and how important uh, it can be to those, those who have it. But I'm interested in kind of taking a broader look at this, uh, mainly because in part I'm, I spend a lot of time uh, connecting with this side of me that cares deeply about people, places, things, topics. Uh, and I've become much more fascinated in the last handful of years of taking a good look at how I'm choosing to frame things <laughs> in my life including love. And we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. We get to um, where I'm at uh, with things as of now. 
But I wanted to tell three interrelated stories uh, that maybe broaden out this discussion of love and maybe introduce some things that um, might be new to some of you listening. Some of you might be familiar with it. And it was new to me when I first heard them and, and things that have been life-changing for me in terms of how I uh, view love in general. And the first story I want to tell you is, is about uh, a young man named Tony, Tony DeMello, who was born in 1931 in what was then called Bombay in British-controlled India, now the city of Mumbai in independent India. But he was born there in 1931, and he was born to... Uh, to converts to Catholicism. So he grew up in the Catholic Church. And when Tony was young, of course, British rule in India was, was, had been decades, uh, decades long by that point. And of course, it was the Great Depression. And certainly the experience of people uh, around the world in the Great Depression varied. But in uh, places that were under colonial control, like British India, uh, it made difficult situations even worse. And so in... Catholic uh, enclaves like where DeMello grew up in uh, Mumbai and elsewhere, a lot of those economic tensions could lead to a lot of social tensions. And within DeMello's own family, many of whom had backgrounds like many Indians in Hinduism, the fact that they had converted in some cases had severed family relationships and strained other ones. And that was something that he grew up with. And of course, he grew up witnessing uh, a lot of the, uh, the inequity uh, going on in India under British rule, as well as what he called the later in life, the fierce social divisions within the caste system in, in Hindu-dominated India. And so this was a young boy who from a very early age was introduced to a lot of the stark realities, difficult realities of the larger world and witnessed the direct cost to people's lives day in, day out. He was surrounded by a lot of abject poverty uh, where he lived and was relatively better off in his own family. From a very young age, he really took to his Catholic faith, Tony did, and he said when he was, even before he was a teenager, that one day he wanted to join the Society of Jesus, better known as the Jesuit order, uh, one of the great intellectual orders of Catholicism based in the life experience and teachings of uh, St. Ignatius Loyola going back to the 16th century. And so he wanted to do that. And his friends remembered him, who knew him at the time, remembered him growing up with pretty rigid conservative Catholic theology. And uh, it was something that perhaps in reaction to the hardship he saw around him, uh, the difficulties in the world that as he knew it, it stemmed from that. But when he traveled to Spain... Uh, for a longer period of time for more in-depth study in preparation for joining the Jesuits. Uh, he seemingly somewhere along the road, and he talked about it uh, in a lot of his speaking engagements later in life, somehow had a shift away from that rigidity and began to focus on talking about theology and talking about love from a storytelling point of view. And he began to do speaking engagements. He joined the Jesuits. He began to uh, became a priest. He began to speak to audiences around the world about, uh, for, I guess you could narrow it down to a word he said more than anything else, awareness. He even developed uh, and talked about something he called an awareness prayer, which was the idea that rather than what, what Christians, as he experienced it, tended to do, or people in general tended to do, pray for certain things to happen. 
Pray for outcomes. Pray about their attachments, family, job, wealth, ambition. Instead of that, being aware of the way things really were in the moment and praying out of a sense of gratitude for that and gratitude for what one could better see when one accepted reality on its own terms rather than praying for something external to happen. In DeMello's mind, as he talked more and more about this, he began to truly believe that this kind of experience of awareness was what should inform theology of any kind, not the other way around, which I absolutely love. (laughs) I I love that. Uh, But it was something that, having grown up with with a lot of faith traditions around him, DeMello began to tell stories from a number of different faith traditions when speaking to Catholic audiences. So he would pull stories from Hinduism, from Buddhism, another major religion that is seen quite a bit in India and elsewhere. Uh, Islam as well. Uh, The northwest section of the old British Empire of India became Pakistan and a lot of turmoil in the late 40s as uh, the switch over to independence happened. So he pulled stories from there, and as he began to travel the world, becoming more and more of a renowned speaker on these types of, uh, I guess you could call experiential theology questions, he met more and more people from around the world, more faith traditions, and began to incorporate those stories into a lot of what he talked about. And so uh, he died when he was 55 years old, 1987, of a heart attack. So he died very young. And uh, he hadn't published a lot, but uh, he had spoken to so many audiences, led so many retreats, made so many friends around the world that all those people combined gathered together and transcribed a lot of his talks. And they became a series of books. And these books became released, particularly in the 1990s uh, and then early 2000s. And you can find them just about anywhere. And uh, one of the books that is most influential on me. His book, Awareness, was the first one that I was given by a friend. uh, And I really loved it. I loved his whole approach. But he has a small book of just short talks that's called The Way to Love. And it is a book that I keep with me at all times. It is marked up. It's got my stars and underlines and comments and exclamation points and all that stuff with it. Uh, And he, in it, he, he challenges notions about love. You know, this idea that love needs to be about outcomes and what we can get from it or what it looks like, uh, because that's an attachment. And he saw this, he saw attachment as truly the enemy of understanding what real love is. And this, he used this example. He said, you know, when we go see a beautiful sunset and we are moved by it to the point that we just stand at it and everything else disappears and we marvel at its beauty and we understand that it is a very temporary thing. We don't ever say that that sunset belongs to me this person, and that it doesn't belong to anybody else. We don't do that. So why do we do that with other people? <laughs> it was his, was his larger question. He also used the example of a rose. He says, when a rose blooms and goes through its day, it is not spending any time on wondering how beautiful it is or worrying about its existence. It just does what a rose does. It looks as a rose does. It smells as a rose does. That, and he encourages all of us to view ourselves that way, as having inherent beauty, not being worried about those things, but instead busying ourselves with being ourselves. To him, love was truly expressed in that kind of freedom, and therefore freedom was love. And this was one of the more famous quotes. It's one that I not only have unlined 
underlined in, in this book, uh, The Way to Love, but I actually have it posted a couple of places in my house. And I really think it's a wonderful way to look at love, particularly towards other people, which is around Valentine's Day, what we, what we tend to get focused on. And he said this, he said that the ultimate expression of love of any kind to anyone should be based in this, quote, I leave you free to be yourself, to think your thoughts, indulge your tastes, follow your inclinations, and behave in ways that you decide are to your liking. End quote. And he says in that book, take as long as, take as much time as you need to reflect on this until you get it. And then he says right behind that, once you understand this, quote, then you are truly ready to love another. End quote. I leave you free to be yourself, to think your thoughts, indulge your tastes, follow your inclinations, behave in ways that you decide are to your liking. Which, when you put it side by side <laughs> with Valentine's Day, seems kind of weird, right? A lot of people have interpreted this to mean that, that DeMello, himself a priest, I mean, first of all, what could he know of romantic love? Okay, fair enough. But then there are others who are saying that he was against the idea of commitment, right? That this could just lead to a free-for-all in how people view love. And he never said that. And he actually never believed that. His point was that even in the most committed relationships of any kind, that that would have to be based in that type of freedom. The understanding that a person could change their mind. A person could do something different. A person could step away. They could grow over time. Relationships could change. And that there had to be an allowance somewhere in that, how that commitment was built for that type of freedom. And he never said it would be an easy thing to figure out how to do, either on an individual level, on a, on a relational level, or on a societal level. But that's what he really focused on. Okay? And I've always really liked that <laughs> about him. And so what that encouraged me to do when I first heard it was to really reflect on what it is it that I'm wanting out of my relationships, my commitments. Am I really building that around attachment desire so I can feel better? to get the external validation, or am I really seeing things around me, even including other people, for who they are and allowing them the freedom, like that sunset, like that rose that he talked about, to be as they are and not owned by me or anybody else? And I've never fully answered that question for myself, but I haven't really tried. That open-ended question, I'm perfectly fine letting sit out there and just see how I kind of grow through it and emerge through it. So there's that. Okay, so I got DeMello on one hand. The couple that I wanted to talk to you about, maybe a couple names that some of you know, uh, Lillian Hellman and Dashiell Hammett. Lillian Hellman and Dashiell Hammett were both writers. And they were, in their heyday, they were writing in the 1930s through the 1940s. Uh, Hellman was a playwright. Her most famous uh, uh, plays were The Little Foxes, which is considered one of the great plays of the 20th century. Her, uh, Her famous play, The Children's Hour, uh, was a very controversial play that dealt with false accusations of lesbianism uh, among teachers. And this was being done in the 1930s and it won a number of different awards. And it was turned into a film called These Three. Hammett himself was one of the great gumshoe mystery writers of the era, uh, most famous for creating Sam Spade, the Maltese Falcon. Um, of course, the screenplay based on his novel uh, won a series of Academy Awards. And in 1931... He and uh, Hammett and Hellman met at a dinner and began what became a 30-year-long relationship. 
And it was one that defied expectation, defied convention. Uh, they never did marry. They spent some time living um, on a shared property in New York, but they spent many more years apart than they actually did together. Both of them, of course, very interested in their own work. Writers tend to be very self-focused and like a lot of independents. And they both were heavily political in the time. Both of them were on the far political left in the country. And in the 1950s, that this earned them attention from the House Un-American Activities Committee during the McCarthy era. Both were blacklisted from Hollywood uh, and from Broadway for quite a period of time because of that. And they got a, a little bit of a checkered past. They, they tended to be uh, pro-Stalin a lot longer than most anybody had been pro-Stalin during the 1930s, uh, defending communism against what they saw as the excesses of capitalism in the United States. Of course, they're witnessing the Depression themselves. And they met the same year that DeMello was born, by the way. It's worth, worth noting. Uh, but they weren't exactly saints at all. Uh, Hammett was an alcoholic. Uh, had a lot of chronic illness that he dealt with. Uh, he was seen by many as vulgar and crass. Uh, but Hellman saw the deep thinker and the vulnerable man inside him, and she was one of the few people that he allowed to ever see that side of him. Hellman herself was very self-conscious about her appearance. She didn't consider herself to be attractive at all. Uh, and so she compensated for that by her own admission to Hammett by writing formidable pieces that tended to shock people. And uh, she wasn't afraid to embellish stories about her own life or about other people's. And she defended uh, pretty unpopular political positions at various times uh, during the lead up to World War II and even during World War II. In fact, for a short period of time, she was even attracted to fascism. Uh, but once she experienced uh, fascism's anti-Semitism, she was Jewish by background, that repelled her and pushed her more towards communism. Now, what made their relationship so interesting, though, was that even though they never married and even though they spent a lot of time apart, they always found their way back to reconnect with one another. They always knew where the other one was in the world, and they never stopped the other from doing what they wanted to do, writing what they wanted to write. Uh, they collaborated sometimes. Uh, Hammett actually uh, wrote a screenplay version of... of uh, Hellman's play Watch on the Rhine and that screenplay was nominated for Academy Award in 1942 for best screenplay but that went to Casablanca <laughs> a little bit of a more well-known film but they also spent a lot of time apart and their relationship could be just about anything at various points calm playful vulnerable combative passionate distant yet their one commitment to one another which they talked about and their friends reflected on in the years after their death was that they would accept all those things about each other and learn first and foremost from each other in that process. And they would do so by never restricting the other one's movements or predilections. It was that kind of freedom. Very different in its expression than anything that DeMello, a Jesuit priest, would have ever imagined. Okay, but nevertheless, focus on the same thing. They weren't worried about labels or outcomes. Instead, they were focused on honesty and the reality of each of them and of themselves and how that played out. And they built such an interesting relationship that even though Hammett died in 1961, people are still writing books about that relationship. Okay? Because even though it was imperfect, and at times <laughs> not all that pretty, and certainly not conventional, it was quite real to both of them. And they both admitted how much they learned about themselves 
and, and how to become better people from living specifically from that very honest space. Okay, so again, not just in the larger spiritual sense and individual sense that Tamello talked about, but even in the romantic sense, not thinking so much about outcomes or attachments seemingly has a powerful vibe to it that can draw people in and certainly draw interest in. And, and it certainly has me, it has had me thinking about the nature of romantic relationships ever since I was first introduced to their relationship uh, a handful of years ago. All right. I have one more story that I want to get to. Fortunately, it's the shortest one, <laughs> which I can hopefully use to tie off here um, on the other end of the break. So come on back. We'll finish up with that. And I'll kind of give you an update on where I'm at here on this show is all about you. Stick around. I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor this show is all about you because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. Don't ask me to talk. Don't Ask Me to Talk is a program about sharing something good. Hosted by me, Stacey Heller, with my co-host and my mom's favorite, Eric Ryder, Don't Ask Me to Talk echoes what we're talking about when we aren't being so serious. We'll highlight what's good to watch, read, see, listen to, and more with a reoccurring spot with Vance Dingfelder of Dingfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating? Tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you. We are talking about love in the broadest senses and maybe in some new senses. Uh, talked about Anthony DeMello's approach at it from a, from a very unique spiritual point of view that's been influential on me. Uh, and then, of course, the relationship of Lillian Hellman and Dashiell Hammett in the 30s through the 60s, uh, a very real uh, and compelling relationship that defied all convention um, and <laughs> explanation uh, but had a lot of beauty to it. And part of the beauty was that they were two very, very rough, honest, imperfect, flawed people who accepted that about each other and still believed that they could learn from one another. The last story I want to tell you about is something that just literally happened in the last few days. Um, if you watched the Super Bowl yesterday, you probably saw a television ad with uh, the rock band U2 in it announcing a new residency that they'll be doing in Las Vegas starting in the fall of this year at a new venue called The Sphere, which is a big technological marvel that will hold 17,000 people in it, surrounded by what is essentially a sphere of a giant LED screen. Uh, and they'll be doing a residency there. This is coming off of them about to release an album, a new album, but it's, it's an album of 40 songs that they've already released that are big favorites. Some of them are major hits for theirs, and their catalog stretches back over 40 years. So pulling all that together, and they've reimagined them and redone them for a group of guys that when they wrote them, they were in their teens or 20s or 30s, and now they're all in their 60s. And they, they explored this idea, or they wanted to explore this idea. What do men who have been together and close friends for 40 years, as they're moving into an older part of their life, how do these songs change? How do they view them? How, how else could these songs be expressed? And so they wrote and are about to release this uh, this album called Songs of Surrender, that's 40 reimagined songs. And in YouTube fan sites all over social media and elsewhere, 
What has resulted from both of these things, the new residency at the Sphere and this new album, is essentially a war zone. <laughs> it is controversial to say the least. There are some fans that are thrilled about it. There are some fans who think, oh man, these, these songs were perfectly fine the way they are. Why are they messing with them? They shouldn't do that. Uh, some saying, why are they continuing to go if they're in their 60s? What can they possibly do that's new? They aren't doing anything new. They're just kind of going back retrospectively doing these things. And it's been really interesting to watch this. Now, I'm a part of all this because I'm a huge fan of the band. I have been ever since I was 10 years old. They were the first concert I ever saw, and I have, I have not missed any one of their tours ever since, going back to 1983. That tells you how old I am. Okay, But uh, it is a bit of a sickness for me. I genuinely enjoy seeing them. I've seen them a number of times in a number of places around the country. And they're one of those bands where, you know, money's not really an object. I'm going to go. Now, the reason that I include that in this series of stories is because talk about a series of reactions that have everything to do with the expectations, the attachments, and the outcome focus of fans <laughs> more than actually the band itself, right? These are, after all, in this is my opinion on this, these are their songs. If they want to reimagine them and re-record them, it's not like they're replacing the old ones. <laughs> it's not like they're saying, we're going to get rid of all the ones you actually love and these are the new official versions. They're just trying something out. This is their stuff. They, as the artists who created this, get to do something with it. And I understand that you know fans feel like, hey, they should be paying attention to the fans and all of this. Well, yes and no. They're putting things out because they want to do this. They know that fans will listen to it. They also know that fans will, some will like it, some will not. But the idea is they are still willing to engage with this. It's the same idea with what they're doing in Vegas. It is kind of weird. You know, them doing a residency in Vegas is kind of a sign that maybe they've, they're, they're going about as far as they're going to go. And of course, they're in their 60s. <laughs> they can't do what they were doing in their 20s. And so I've been fascinated in this back and forth that I've been, been witnessing with fans about what this all means and very little is actually said at all about the band <laughs> it's instead it's this deep love oh my gosh this love has been betrayed by all these things I, what they're doing I don't even recognize it it just seems like they're selling out I'm, they've, been, they've been famous for 40 years I'm not sure who they could sell out to uh, anymore but nevertheless it to me is this expression of exactly what DeMello was talking about and what Hellman and Hammett worked against just recognizing that people change and that realities become different as people choose to do different things, go in different directions. What those of us who are connected to them and love about them have to decide to what level that works for us. If some people don't want to like the new album, don't want to spend the money to go see them in Vegas, they don't have to do so. Can they do so? and still love the band. I think it's absolutely true. Absolutely it's possible. And there are some fans on these sites that are pointing that out. More power to you. Because then at least there's a recognition between what your own feelings are and what you would have hoped to see and recognizing that the band is just doing something different. Right? There's a lesson in that. We can tend to take these things that are so important to us, years and years of music. Their music is more important to me than anybody else's because of what I got from it, how I emotionally connected with it at times throughout my life growing up. All of that matters a lot. 
if I simply just hold on to that because anything that is different from that or a new direction for them threatens that in my own mind or in my own experience, that's on me, it seems to me. That's about me wanting to protect something that is already well past and that is well over. And I'm the one making up the stories about what it means that they're going in this new direction. Being disappointed with what they're doing seems a little strange to me in the sense of, hmm, am I really paying attention to who they are? Am I really paying attention to what they're trying to do? These men who have connected, and they've been close friends, not just bandmates, close friends for four plus decades. Most bands don't do that. (laughs) Most people don't do that. (laughs) Most friendships, relationships don't do that. But they've managed to do it, and most of the time being among the biggest bands in the world, and their lead singer, Bono, one of the most recognized people on the planet. And they've tried to do a lot of good with that. Um, not ju- Certainly with their advocacy for, uh, for issues around the world. Uh, and they've done a whole lot of good with that. But also in their, uh, their desire to protect artists and the copyright for, and their, their ownership over their own songs. They are a powerful voice for artistic expression and freedom around the world. And they have a moral clarity to them that not everybody agrees with, but they are not unwilling to put out there, regardless of what people think. And yet something like this comes along, a new shift, and suddenly people are personally threatened by that. I find that not surprising on one level, but also illustrative of what we're talking about here. If my focus was going to be on, well, no, don't come out with new songs because somehow those threaten my understanding or my feeling or my love of the old ones, that has nothing to do with them. That has everything to do with me. If they're taking a direction where, oh, man, they're not putting out new stuff anymore, and that's, that's terrible, that must mean they are selling out or they don't have any new ideas, that may or may not be true. But I have no idea. I'm not going to be sitting down with any of them soon over a beer, most likely, so I'm not going to get a chance to ask them. So I could either make up a story and try to believe it and get myself all worked up about it and have debates with people about it without even knowing the truth of what's happening, or I could just sort of be okay with not knowing and take what I like out of this new album and out about this new endeavor and leave the rest and not have to judge them for it and not have to beat myself up for it for not liking it or maybe liking only some of it. Or thinking I'm weird because I love it and so many other people don't. I mean, you just get so spun off into these things. Now, imagine that applied to just about anything. You can apply that same thing to our individual relationships. So much of what we put on them and when they cause problems for us have to do with our expectations, our desired outcomes, wanting to hold on to things as they are rather than allowing for things to change, people to change opinions to change, ways of expression to change. That is not the freedom that DeMello talked about. It's worth hearing his quote again that I read earlier. I leave you free to be yourself, to think your thoughts, indulge your tastes, follow your inclinations, behave in ways that you decide are to your liking. And with that, that kind of takes me to where I am today. As I've been thinking about all of these things and reflecting on all this, aware that the holidays coming up, and yet also aware of all these different ways in my own life that I'm appreciating more and more the love that I do have. And one of the things that it has in common across the board is I'm much more aware of the dividing line between the love I feel for people, for things around me, the things I'm doing, where that dividing line is for them 
and then me. <laughs> the line between my desire to attach something to that, to reach a certain outcome, the divine line between that and just allowing people, situations to be as they are and myself to be as I am and just simply move from that space of awareness. In my spiritual life, that awareness approach that DeMello talked about is becoming more and more of where I sit these days. Uh, it occurred to me not too long ago that in my, my praying life, I, I don't really ask for a whole lot <laughs> anymore. Uh, really what I seek is connection. What I seek is to be more at ease in the reality that I'm in. More of an awareness of my differences and commonalities with other people. And what I find is that that's helping me connect with people better, with myself better, and with those external beautiful things around me. Could be nature, could be an expression of art, a film, music, something that touches the senses, a new, a new dish that I've cooked or that somebody else is cooking for me. All those things I'm finding are much more interesting and enjoyable and I, and I connect with them more and enjoy the love of them more because I'm not trying to put all those outcomes things on them. doesn't mean that I don't get hit by all the stories, right? Or I don't have feelings like loneliness or, or wishing sometimes things were different. Uh, that happens. I guess what's happening more and more is I'm more aware that I can end up making up stories to make those moments worse, or I can let them be as they are, understand them for what they are, and sit with them as they pass and still hold on to the good parts of what I know I have in my life. And this brings me back to my original point at the top of the show. Love, whether we're talking romantic, but certainly talking about it, love in a much larger sense, is not a finite resource. And I don't think that's an abstract thing. We can find scriptures in almost every faith tradition around the world that will say the same thing, but we can experience it in our own life. For those of you with kids and grandkids, when you have another kid, it, you didn't use up the, all your love on the first one. You've got plenty for the second one and the third and the fourth. My friend Tawny Santabria got a new grandbaby earlier this year. She's got plenty of love for the first one and the second one. My friend Julia has got three adopted kids and one biological kid. She loves them all the same. And there's plenty of room for all of them. And she's got four grandchildren and she loves all of them the same. And if there were eight, <laughs> none of them would lose a percentage of the love she has for him. It's just, that's just not how we are. That's not how we operate. It's not how love is because love is about connecting with ourselves and with others. And it's, we're at our best, I think. And I think this is where DeMello was onto something and, and where Dashiell Hammett and Lillian Hellman were onto something. That when we recognize the uniqueness of each person, thing, moment that we love, and allow it to be just that for that moment and not want it to be anything other than that over time. I think we're much better able to truly love it and be okay with ourselves and be okay with whatever that looks like in the moment and not try to make it out to be something different than what it is or want it to be something different than what it is. And while I know I'm probably making that sound simple, I think it is a process that builds over time. It's a sense of awareness that we can all engage in and sit with. For me, I'm really grateful this year that I am becoming more and more aware of love in all of its expressions. 
And it's coming from numerous directions in my life, pretty much from almost every direction in my life, in some way, shape, or form. And it's a truly fabulous place to be. And so I don't find myself down that this holiday is coming up because I get to choose what I want that to look like. So I'm choosing that this year. You know, um, if I feel any sadness or disappointments, I'll allow those to sit. There's no need to make the day bigger. There's also no need to demonize it either. So this year, I'm looking forward to telling the people that I love that I love them (laughs) again. (laughs) And I'll tell them those things on every other day of the year, too. Uh, And I'll enjoy the very fact that I have all those people and things in my life to tell them, to express to them, uh, to show them how much I love them and how much I see the love that they give to me and hopefully get better at not putting attachments, outcomes, ideas, or conditions on those things. So I hope that was something that you found interesting uh, and chance to reflect on. If you'd like to reach out to me and talk about it, you can find me at wordsbyjdk.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you can certainly let me know there. And if you missed any of this episode or any other episodes of this show, you can find this show as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much in advance for subscribing and leaving me a review. I truly appreciate it. As always, I have thank yous to finish up the show with. This show is all about you. It's produced and distributed by Hubbard Radio Seattle. Eric Ryder is the in-studio producer, editor, mix master. The show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids. Check them out at airside.org. And the original theme music is by Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media. Special thanks for contributing to this episode and all that went well for me this week has to go to Julia Cannell, Tawny and Dave Santabria, Bruce and Cindy Bullard, Rachel Manfredi, Kathy Lewis, Emily McFetridge, Troy Hunter, Ashley Niebel, Isabel Gallegos, Ann Foster, Brittany Johnson, Stacey Heller, Katie Beck, and Eric Crema. Thanks to my buddy, the incomparable Eric, for a wonderful Super Bowl party yesterday. Eric is my favorite kid, a former student of mine, uh, who's just a wonderful, wonderful individual. Him and his family had a great Super Bowl party yesterday. Thanks for hosting that. Really appreciate it. Thanks to everyone uh, who reached out to congratulate me on my certification as a human potential coach. Thanks so much for that. I'm looking forward to telling listeners like you more about that soon. And certainly, thank you, listeners. Without you, I could not do this for you. And as a way to send you off the rest of the week, let's end with this original haiku. Who you are to me is the wrong question. Can I love you as you are? Chins up, everyone.